Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. This month's offering is a roundtable discussion with Thomas von Breda and Robert Cabrales, whom you may remember from episodes two and four, respectively, wherein we talked about Alistair Crowley and hyperstition. As I had stated in last month's episode, I had invited them to this discussion, partly for fun, but also as a type of experiment in which we explore a number of questions or issues surrounding the documentary Hellier and the Penny Royal podcast. As this was new for all of us, we got off to a bit of a rocky start, but as things unfolded, I think we ended up having a very productive discussion that raised some interesting points. However, we do talk about a lot of different things, so I thought it might be helpful to give a little introduction that provides a framework to keep in mind. In this first part, we jump right in and try to tackle the huge philosophical questions regarding the nature of the other with a capital O and how we can view reality. Various concepts are mentioned, such as the numinous, the imaginal, Jeff Kripal's The Supernatural, that's two words, and Kenneth Grant's Mauve Zone, that's M-A-U-V-E, as in the color mauve or mauve. It may be helpful to know now that the mauve zone is an unspace where waking and dreaming simultaneously occur. We then move on to discussing synchronicities as a type of correspondence or a resonance that flows between two things that seem disconnected, resulting in an intense emotional experience. We then get into a pretty detailed discussion of what the star sapphire or the blue star ritual is all about, where it comes from, why it's considered a weapon by Alan Greenfield and Terry Wrist, what it actually does for a person, how the Hellier team might use it, as well as another ritual nicknamed the Bornless One. Thomas notes the distinction between Greenfield's and Crowley's viewpoints about these rituals, and Robert notes that people like Greenfield and Kenneth Grant have appropriated Crowley's rituals in order to use them in a new way. This leads us to speculate about new magic and chaos magic and the need for a careful approach to these practices. Okay, hopefully this will help you to follow along as we traverse these various topics. I should note that Robert is the first to speak after my opening. Unfortunately, I didn't think to let them say hello or anything before we jumped right in. So here we go. Welcome back to the podcast, Thomas and Robert. I'm very happy to have you both back to talk about Hellier and High Strangeness. This is our mini roundtable. We have to start somewhere, of course. (laughs) So let me start by asking you both. Uh, You've both listened to the the warm-up episode. And is there anything that you'd like to add to the discussion in general? Uh, any comments that you'd like to make, remarks that you'd like to make before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of things? I I think you did a great job with the warm-up. There's Thanks. so much, yeah, there, there's so much going on uh, in Hellier. 
And there's so much that spirals out and into it that it's almost impossible to talk about it in a straight line and also talk about it in a confined space. So you did a great job. I'm Thank you. I felt like I was all over the place. Okay. So yes, it, there is a lot, a lot to talk about. Uh, and, and I think it uh, suits the hyperstition concept perfectly. I think that's probably why you brought it up to me because we had just finished our interview about hyperstition and that's when you let me know about the podcast or not about the podcast, the documentary about Hellier. So that is exactly why I brought it up. Right. Okay. Thomas, anything you'd like to comment, add? Sure. I also think you did a really, really good job. Uh, Just to uh, put that out there. Um, Yeah. I thought you laid a very good foundation. Uh, I think it's exciting that we're now going to sort of unpack uh, at least, you know, I am from my, from my perspective, um, how we're going to unpack how all of that all over the placeness, how that can be translated within a more academic framework. You know, I think a lot of listeners who have listened to that episode are maybe now wondering how can you as a scholar unpack all of that? Mm -hmm. And after watching Hellier and listening to Penny Royal, um, it did strike me that, we're dealing with two different ways of interpreting phenomena of interpreting literature. And I think it's nice to compare the two and see what the differences are, what the similarities are, and if maybe they can come together. So that's why I'm really excited for having an episode dedicated to all of this. Wonderful. Yes. And I probably should make that very clear at the, at the outset that it's not only Hilaire that we're talking about today, we are also talking about the podcast Penny Royal, and Penny Royal is associated and, and linked to Hellier as in one of the episodes Nathan Isaac was interviewed in Hellier, and the actual episode number escapes me, uh, but he's interviewed, and he was already working, as I said in the warm-up episode, already working on his own project. But it ties into this whole phenomenon so well that I wanted to include that as well. Okay, so let's talk about the weird stuff first. Let's start with that. Uh, I did have a question for you both uh, about what I brought up in the warm-up episode regarding Nathan Isaac's uh, description of when he's talking about how can we view reality and he was talking about how we can view it as a movie being played in our, in our mind and what's whatever is outside of that is the quote unquote other that is aware of us. We not, we may not be aware of the other. There might be times that we can be aware of the other, but it is aware of us. So there's this second order cybernetics uh, going on. I found this to be incredibly intriguing and interesting idea of of how to to look at the other, quote unquote, with the capital O. Uh, but I was just wondering what what you both thought about that. So Robert, if you would 
maybe like to start? Yeah, the the question about kind of the other and the outside um, and how it relates to experience. This is one of the most fundamental questions of philosophy um, from for thousands of years. So it's no easy question to solve, resolve, even wrap your head around. From listening to uh, Penny Royal, the, the other, the outside, as something completely separate from the inside is kind of Kantian. Um, you have noumena and phenomena. Various post-Kantian theories have resonance between that. But then you also have imminent rather than transcendental models where the outside and the inside are a little more squished um, as like a, a reoccurring thing. That's kind of how hyperstition works between the both. So I, I don't know if we can answer those questions to start, but I do think these questions about what reality is, how reality is, what reality can be, create a really good space and zone for thinking from the get-go, both for the show and for this conversation. Mm. Okay. Thomas, with regard to uh, Jeff Kripal and and Whitley Strieber and their book, The Supernatural, and they want to incorporate anomalous phenomena or all this weird stuff or quote-unquote the other, they want to make that a part of the natural they want to make that a part of what what it is that we just live our our day to day experiences. That this is a part of that, and I know that 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 is something that that you and I had discussed, and you thought that that was a, an important um, or an intriguing idea. Uh, how do you feel that this fits this other that's outside of us? looking at us, watching us, how do you feel that that fits into that type of narrative or does it not fit? I think it absolutely fits. Um, maybe I should explain a little bit first uh, what that supernatural sure. is. That's a good idea. Um, uh, this is something that uh, Jeffrey Kripal develops and uh, it's not supernatural as we know it, but it's written with a gap between super yes. and natural. And the whole idea basically is that um, rather than supposing that anomalous events say um, what happens in, in David's email. So um, you encounter uh, an anomalous entity, in this case, a goblin, um, should we regard this as a breach of natural law, which automatically makes it either a hallucination or um, or something, you know, literally supernatural, as in not accounted for by our natural laws? Or should we regard this as just a very special kind of um, something that is rooted in, in, in the natural world? Uh, so it's a way of talking about these phenomena it, uh, from a phenomenological perspective, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know if I'm if I'm uh, explaining this well. Uh, it's basically Kripal's suggestion to move beyond words like paranormal, because they seem to suggest that you're automatically talking about hallucinations, mm -hmm. which, in Kripal's perspective, 
sort of dissuade scholars from talking about it at all because it's almost like it automatically already didn't happen, so it's not important. And um, throughout the book, Kripal um, looks at different kinds of experiences that have been reported centuries ago already. That's also part of Kripal's point. These things happen all the time, so maybe they're not as anomalous as we think. And in fact, people have... Uh, come up with models to explain this type of thing for a long time. And he mentions concepts that I think I want to bring into the, this discussion. Okay. Concepts like the the numinous, which is a concept by Rudolf Otto. Concepts like the imaginal, um, which was developed by Frederick Myers. And uh, all of these ideas really relate to this experience of what's on the inside, what's on the outside. When you're talking about these extreme experiences, like an alien presence. So there are models for this. I, I study mostly um, occultist ritual magic. So I deal every day with states of consciousness where this boundary between self and others seems blurred, um, where magicians encounter beings that seem to come from somewhere outside of themselves, but at the same time relating to themselves in a strange way. So this blurring of boundaries and this question really of, is there anything that happens outside of my mind? Yeah, that's something we deal with, at least something I deal with every day. And I'm really excited to talk about these concepts because um, I think we're going to need them as scholars if we're going to unpack mm. any of this in an academic way. What do you both think about this idea that this is this other, uh, because Nathan, I think he's also referring to some of the guests that he has on the podcast it, to what they have brought to the, to the conversation, that this other can be considered magic as well. And that magic is outside of what we understand as space and time. What do you think about that? How does that fit then into, because I, I have questions about that myself with regards to magical practices uh, that I would not, not that I'm an expert on magical practices and practicing, you know, creating tulpas and things like that. But what I've understood uh, from my research, that this is happening within space and time. So how do we talk about this other as Nathan talks at it, talks about it as being outside or am I just not understanding it? Perhaps I'm just curious to what you both think about it. So the, the very notion of space time already puts constructs right. and constricts are yeah. thinking about temporality um, so space-time is a spatial linear process, mm -hmm. and it's a container. And because of that, we kind of have causality as a main component of how reality works. Um, so within this construct, by working outside of space-time, how do you think outside yes. of space and outside of time if yeah. your entire concept of time is spatial temporal yeah. so there are models that aren't kind of einstein newtonian space-time uh, again bergson and deleuze spinozist 
the the imminence network. And we talk about this with virtual and the actual mm-hmm. and nonlinear temporality where time is right now and memory is right now, the future is right now. And the simultaneity of these do this folding and unfolding process where right now opens up virtualities in the past that have been there but weren't yet actualized and unfolds them as the future presence. And so it's, it's constant becoming. Okay, so you're... That- uh, just just for the listeners who can't see what, what you're doing with your hands, uh, yeah. you're making these undulating uh, circular type of uh, motions with, with both of your hands as if one thing is unfolding and the other thing is like folding in on top of it or in on itself and that it's like this constant uh, state of almost circular type of or turning type of motion. So you can think like Mobius strips. Um, I believe it's Yates. Um, he has a gyre system of these two cones kind of collapsing into and out of each other. Um, there's like a Einstein Rosenthal bridge, like Mm -hmm. that kind of collapsed, uh, like turn. Yeah. And I think this is relevant because with synchronicities, which is such a major component of both magic and the research that they did in Hellier, a synchronicity is an a-causal connecting principle. And that gets kind of funky if you try and spatio-temporalize it. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you work in this kind of Mobius strip unfolding, infolding, Unspace, you start to things can move around with a little more fluidity, yeah. um, and that's how I have approached okay. magic. Um, I think it adds for a little, a little more flexibility. Yeah, I kind of also envision it like a snake coiling in on its on itself. That type of motion that you can see the muscles moving under the skin, and that that nothing is static. There's constant movement. That's how I'm vi- visualizing it. So, anyway, I'm, get- I'm talking too much, Thomas. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not good at this stuff. For me, this is philosophy. <laughs> so I'm. I feel totally out of my league. Um, all I know is I, like I said, my background is more occultist, ritual magic, and I read claims all the time that when you're performing these these rituals or, or these meditations, basically when you're experiencing the appropriate magical states of mind, uh, time and space simply collapse and they reveal themselves as illusions that really oh, okay. have no ontological reality. So in that sense, you would simply be undoing something that you're only imagining is there. Um, that doesn't mean it's not real, correct? Right. Right. Exactly. That's, I guess, the the, the, the paradox of it. Um, well, I think that the word imagination is misunderstood by many people. They think that it's a figment of the of the mind, that it's not a real thing. But the imagination is actually a tool of perception that you can perceive a level of reality. Correct. 
Right. Okay. Absolutely. That's um, basically Kripal advances that argument as well very strongly. Um, he uses a concept called the imaginal rather than imaginary. Um, and this is something that I think we've all noticed. A lot of um, uh, definitely more recent um, claims of altered states of consciousness, etc. Um, not everyone comes out of those experiences believing that what they saw was real, what they, what you know, what they heard was real. Um, Kreipel mentions this as well. There's a lot of people nowadays who who are aware that their imagination played an active role in, in, in an experience like that, but that nevertheless, what they saw, heard, or experienced represented something that was real. And Kripal, that's why he uses um, the term imaginal, sort of interprets the imagination as a, as a two-way mirror. It can be something that creates a story, but it can also um, tune into a more symbolic level of, of reality. That's the claim anyway, so that your imagination works on a symbolic level, trying to interpret something real that simply does not correspond to rationalistic or dualistic processing of reality. Now, of course, that sounds maybe all kinds of spooky and maybe a little bit weird, Um we're but this talking is something about that weird stuff. <laughs> we're, we're in the weird already, so let's not let's not uh, hold a, hold back here. So just just say right. it. <laughs> but it's still. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that this is some kind of consensus that okay. uh, all scholars of, of religion right. or esotericism are, are championing these ideas. Okay. Uh, but these, these ideas are out there to explain a lot of these interesting claims and experiences. Um, but the book is controversial. Kripal is controversial. Mm-hmm. Streber is controversial. Mm-hmm. So all of these ideas are still very cutting edge. Um which is why I guess it's interesting to talk about it. Right. Robert, you wanted to add something. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think talking about imagination is fantastic for this space. Um, It kind of colloquially, it seems imagination has been degraded to a mental faculty, a way of thinking or subjectively perceiving. Whereas in the past, uh, the imagination wasn't just a tool. It was a zone. It was a space, Mm. its own kind of uh, plateau, uh, plane that could be engaged at. And I, I believe this has resonance with Islamic mysticism. Yes, this is what uh, uh, Henri Corbin uh, talks about, that there is a real place of the imaginal. And this is consistent with kind of the Bergson-Deleuze philosophy, but it's also very, very present in Kenneth Grant's um, Typhoonian system, the OTO, specifically the Mauve Zone. And so in the intro podcast uh episode seven you talk about how the penny royal podcast talks about the night side mm-hmm. um, and i i haven't figured out the intricacies of this yet but in relation to the night side there's a space uh or an unspace 
called the mob zone. And the mob zone is both the simultaneity of waking life and dreaming life. And as such, it's both and neither. And so within this mob zone, there are entities, uh, psychic entities, mm-hmm. paranormal beings, various existences. Um, I are, believe are we the term on like I the could... astral plane? Is this astral or are we on a different plane? I believe it would be accessed astrally. Okay. But it, it's an in-between of dream and reality. Consciousness. But it's, it's a space within kind of the, the night side. And so you, you can enter this space through trance. Um, okay. But getting back, so this, this mob zone is accessed as an, an imaginal realm, mm-hmm. but it's not imagination like we're kind of uh, thinking about it. It's, it's a space that you access, quote unquote, astrally, however you want to uh, however you want to explain, explain it. it. Yeah. So it's not but like it's, daydreaming. It's not like daydreaming about something. It's 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 an actual place. Okay, this put a pin in that. Well, we're going to come back to that when I talk about tulpas. <laughs> okay, because this is, I think, a really important thing with regard to to that concept of the. They don't call it the dream world. They call it Wonderland. I think they call it. I can't remember what they call it. There is an actual place where the entities reside, the non-physical entities reside. And I feel incredibly stupid that I can't remember what it is called. I will will look it up in the meantime while, (laughs) if we take a little break, I'll look it up so I can actually get the terms that that are used. Okay, so we're, we were talking about this. It came up just now in, the, in our discussion about the stuff that happens all the time uh, that Kripal was alluding to, that, you know, this stuff happens. It's, it's a part of our experience. People have weird things happen to them. So and in Hellier, there was a, a real focus on paying attention to synchronicity, paying attention to all of these meaningful coincidences that, that just kept coming up, kept coming up. And I wanted to bring this up because we were talking, the three of us, about, about this, uh, about there are certain things that we thought were very important and they didn't seem to put much uh, importance to it, at least in the show, perhaps privately, they, they talk differently about it, but like the, uh, Thomas, I remember you talking about the almost getting abducted by aliens type of thing that, that we were like, why didn't they go into this? You know, why, why are they just brushing over this? You know? So in the, in the course of the discussion, I brought up the fact that, you know, a lot of weird stuff has happened to me and I, you know, over the course of my entire life, and it wasn't anything that I thought was like trying to tell me something or trying to lead me in a particular direction. It's just weird stuff that happens. And some things are meaningful at the, at the time. They, they 
I, I, I put a significance to the event, but I didn't link it together with anything bigger or like a path that I was supposed to be following and I was supposed to be paying attention to all these signals that were given to me. So I'm just curious as to your opinions about about this. And and maybe I'm putting these two things into categories where they don't really belong, but I'm just curious to know what you think about it. As someone who experiences synchronicities very regularly, um, I can definitely sympathize with the Hellier team. I think we all can. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. That's that's kind of one of the things I thought was funny. Um, they seem to link their synchronicities, at least, to this idea that they're being initiated into something. Mm-hmm. So after the show, when whenever I have a, a synchronicity, it's kind of funny to think about that. Like, are all of these things like? <laughs> Am I being initiated, calling someone who was just going to call me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think there's a, a, a difference. I think actually this ties back into the the discussion about the other again. Mm-hmm. Um, synchronicities happen, sure. Coincidences happen. In the show, they seem to also distinguish between synchronicities that are really probably coincidences. And then there's like a different category of synchronicities that seems to have this presence of the other like it's it's something that is literally being initiated by something or someone else that's that seems to communicate via that synchronicity so that's i think a a different category it's a a category that i have experienced myself Mm -hmm. um maybe there's time to talk about that later but um uh, basically, to sum it up, I, I read a certain sentence in a book, which is a super classical example of a synchronicity that many occultists, and I'm not an occultist, by the way, I was just reading it for fun, uh, reading a book, and I read a certain sentence and it, and it spoke to me, and I had a, a bunch of weird physical stuff happen to me after reading that, and it felt like there was no way that that it was a coincidence because it seemed to result directly from my act of reading that somehow felt entangled with something alien, something quintessentially alien about that experience that Mm -hmm. I felt I could not have made happen on my own. So I'm really interested in that type of synchronicity. Uh, I think they had really nice, sophisticated theories about it, um, including the idea that synchronicities may be manifestations of what they call the phenomenon themselves, that they're not necessarily things that guide you, but just sort of byproducts of this larger thing that's happening. Do I think that most synchronicities were coincidences in their case? Yes, I do. But there were some really interesting ones, like the tin can, I think, Mm -hmm. would have surprised everyone, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I almost can't remember what your original question was. Well, but... I was uh, the the. I guess I guess it was a question. I maybe I didn't even ask a question, but I was I was thinking of these two things as as if they were separate, as if you could have weird stuff happen to you, and you're right. not thinking like, oh, there's a meaning or a purpose behind it. It just happens, or yeah. that 
everything that happens that that triggers something within you that like wait a minute i have to pay attention to this this is something special this is not just random coincidence right and now i remember my original point okay (laughs) (laughs) sorry this is what happens when you talk about these things right um i think and this also relates to penny royal and I, this is one of my main observations listening to the podcast and watching Hellier. I think, I don't know how it was for you guys, but as a scholar who is sort of used to this kind of material, none of the, the, the literary sources that were brought up, for example, were surprising to me. Right. Um, it's like none of the big revelations were revelations for me because I just happened to know about them, mm-hmm. like all of the Crowley stuff. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing with especially Penny Royal, maybe, but also Hellier, is they really don't know anything about anything <laughs> when it comes to those materials. Yeah. So they start yeah. from a very sort of simple, almost innocent mm-hmm. perspective. And then suddenly, because of perhaps certain coincidences or synchronicities, suddenly this massive world of new information opens up for them continuously over the over process of multiple years um and i think that combined with the fact that at least a hellier team is receiving emails from someone else it might have been easier to create this impression that there was a bigger plan because all of these different connections between the literature that have already been pretty established you know the hellier team didn't figure out these connections i'm talking about for example ufos and and you know fairy folklore for example Mm -hmm. that's a link that has been made many times but they didn't know about that so every time they found such a connection it felt as if it was a connection that related to them yes because they didn't know about it in advance right so i think that probably played into the the intensity of their emotional experience that makes sense. learning about all of this stuff yeah totally makes sense Robert. I, I want to address all of that at okay. once. Um, <laughs> awesome. So working backward, um, I, I very much agree with the, the notion that a lot of the stuff they learned along the way was stuff that we as scholars of Western esotericism already know. But we went through our own initiation of a master's degree in Western esotericism, like completely different context. Yes. You could make it a similar uh, argument if you kind of poetically engage what initiation is. Um, The difference between scholars and the Hellier team is what they do with that information is very different than what scholars do. Uh, Scholars are really good at pointing at things, which... We don't have to get into that, but paranormal <laughs> researchers do field work and they do experimental field work. So they went through this initiation and they say this in the last episode, they now have the tools to yes. do the research they should have been doing, or they had the potential to do this entire time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, right. a paranormal researcher with ritual magic, uh, a God helmet, um, and it's stacks and stacks of like a grimoires, very different than us hanging out with stacks of grimoires. Uh, right. So I think that's important. Yes, that is. Um, and then point. stepping backward again, coincidence and synchronicity and kind of 
sifting through the meaning networks. I've been chewing on this one the last couple of days. And I kind of think it's um, an over the synchronicity as a meaningful coincidence. I don't think that's a good definition. I think coincidences are necessarily meaningful in that you need meaning to establish them. Um, So if you kind of break up the term, you have co-inciding. You have two disconnected things that nonetheless are coinciding and there's a meaningful connection. Yes. And so I've been thinking of uh, synchronicity rather as meaningful coincidence as co-respondence or correspondence. So they, they're oh. coinc- it's a coincidence, but it's a corresponding coincidence. So the, the key functional difference is this resonance that flows between them. It's a meaning, but it's kind of a, an animated meaning, this, this contingent connection, this a-causal connection that is they're sympathetic to each other uh, to kind of use words from uh, a recent weird studies episode. There's, Mm -hmm. it's not just that they are there together. It's that they're there communicating, not communicating, but resonating. Okay. Um, But it's it's a good way not to get rid of meaning in general from the two. Okay. Maybe this is a good point to actually get into a, an example that that is from the show that I think that that they didn't understand and perhaps many of the viewers of the show didn't understand and that has to do with this whole ritual that it came out at the end that this this person Terry Wrist was trying to get through to them that, hey, you guys need to be looking at this thing. But they didn't know <laughs> that was the thing. You know, why would he, would Terry Risk go to such extremes to encode all of this stuff and not just put it out there in front of their faces? Because they don't know what it is that he's talking about. They don't know the gamatria. They don't know the cipher. They don't know any of this stuff, and yet he's working within the system and expecting them to understand it. Finally, this is what, after how many years? At the end of season two, how many years had they been researching? Seven or eight, Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's a long time. So finally, Connor is like, hey, I'm actually going to put that 16-digit number through the cipher and let's see what comes out of this. And let me, let me get somebody that understands this a little bit better and can help me walk, walk me through this. So we get to this blue Sapphire ritual and they're like, well, what's that? What does that mean? Why is this so important? I got the distinct impression from them that they were like, whoa, this has got to mean something. This has got to be something really important. 
but they had no, there was no meaningful uh, correspondence going on, as you said, uh, Robert, because they didn't understand it. So this was the, this was the big question that I had. Why did this happen in this way? I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer. This is just the, the question that hangs over my head. Why would Terry Risk go to all this trouble to try to conceal this when it's so important? And they don't know anything about it, so they don't even know where to look. So let's, let's talk about this ritual. What is the Star Sapphire Ritual? Well, uh, not to offend the listener here, <laughs> but it is um, quite widely understood to be a sexual magic ritual, which in a way isn't super shocking if they read Alan Greenfield's works. Right. Because I, be- I believe it's in one of them where, uh, maybe it's even Terry Rist, I think it's in one of the interview mm-hmm. chapters where they they literally say that you can use, um, I don't know if it was specifically sexual magical rituals, but definitely magical, oh, magical rituals to, oh, well, I have the expert right here. Um, (laughs) Not the expert, I just read it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, that you can use magical power to literally combat the phenomena. Yes, it's a weapon. Right, it is. So, in a way, and this has kind of been sort of my academic frustration with the team sometimes, mm-hmm. they um, it, it reminds me of this the first time that Carl connects the emails to Indrid Cold, which I was kind of just screaming at the screen because that connection, Greg could have already found that out from the emails if he had just read Alan Greenfield, if he had read that chapter because Indrid Cold is mentioned. Yet Carl had to bring that in. So there seems to be, uh, I, I don't know how they do the literary research, but it's kind of like what you said also. It took them so long to make these really simple links, really. But and I me, kind of expect that... Let me stop you there. I I think this maybe also ties in, though, to this not understanding what this stuff is about. Right, they don't, true. They don't know what... what sex magic is they don't know what (laughs) greenfield is referring to and just uh just to be very specific they were talking about libido they weren't talking about yeah yeah, so you can kind of deduce that they're talking about sexual energy but they don't come out and specifically say these are sex magic rituals they don't say blue sapphire ritual is a sex magic ritual so they don't do that true so because even if I may add, sure. I thought it was actually quite funny that the numerologist Connor invites to work on this cipher says, let's just do the most simple. I mean, you guys remember this? Yes. Let's do the most simple <laughs> numerological exercise, which is supposedly a magic square. And it was so complicated the way they show, yeah. the way they, they showed it. So the idea that this most simple numerological thing you could do with the numbers was so complicated. Greg would have never been able to find that out. So it's also been, I mean, to answer your question, maybe to offer a suggestion, Uh I think perhaps the point of the email secrecy is for them to 
use this new Aeon Kabbalah cipher, which is the one used in Greenfield, Mm -hmm. and that maybe if they decoded the email this way, the correspondences would have motivated them to consider the cipher legitimate for other purposes as well. If if you know what I'm getting at. So it was kind of like an instructional exercise to prove that the cipher could work. Because maybe if if he if Terry Wrist maybe just sent an email saying, Hey, there's a cipher in this book and you can use it to fight extraterrestrials. Yeah. It sounds stupid all of a sudden. While if you show the way the cipher works, it sort of draws you into it and maybe made it more attractive. That's one possible explanation for why the email was coded when it didn't really have to be, I guess. Okay. So before we go any further into the actual ritual itself, Robert, did you want to add anything to the, to this part of the conversation? Yeah. Um, the last episode and the last segment of the last episode with John Tenney, Mm -hmm. um, I think the Hellier team really respects him, Mm -hmm. which they should. Like, he's a great uh, contribution to the paranormal community. But I think he overcommits to the reason of the numbers, like, as a express intention. Um, so these numbers plugged into the New Aeon Kabbalah, they give you that sentence, they, they lead them to the Starfire ritual. And Tenny makes it pretty clear that he thinks that was the purpose Mm -hmm. of these numbers the entire time. And that's what they were for. And so they were just not seeing that the entire time. Okay. And I don't think that's consistent with the synchronistic magical thinking that develops in the show. I think it's important that they got that outcome at the end but I think that outcome only unfolded from its virtuality into an actuality because of the resonance they established. Like a, I see what you mean. A, yeah. yeah, a sex magic ritual for engaging aliens is meaningless. It's not a synchronicity. It's just kind of weird mm-hmm. unless the Brown Mountain coordinates, mm-hmm. like that was the meaning of the numbers, um, the various ways they broke it up. All of those are the answer. Because there is no one, one true matter. And I think Tenny kind of uh, puts them in a box that isn't really consistent with how they were thinking up to that point. Mm-hmm. But it's important nonetheless. But I don't think for the reasons they might. And we can get into that after uh, we explain the ritual. I okay. Guess. So, Thomas, is it easy to talk about this and what the significance of this ritual is? Or is this just something that you're like, wait a minute, I don't even try? There's certain things we can say, okay. and there's a lot we can't say. Okay. Typical. Um, <laughs> the Star Sapphire, the Star Cipher ritual, is basically Crowley's version of an older ritual, which is the ritual of the of the hexagram, which he would have learned in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was the magical organization he was. A member of before he founded his own, the AA, the Silver Star. That's how it's commonly filled in those letters. Um, and the way he would have upgraded it supposedly is by including elements of, of sex magic in it. Um, but you know, it, 
this ritual was published in the Book of Lies, which is a very complicated work, mm-hmm. as the title possibly uh, signifies. It's it's a very mysterious work. It seems to be full of, of of jokes, and you know, one of those jokes is actually tied to the star sapphire, sapphire ritual. In the ritual, Crowley refers to um, the action of making the holy hexagram uh, in each of the of the directions, so northeast, southwest. Um, but he doesn't explain what this holy hexagram is. But at the in another chapter of the Book of Lies, he explains what the holy hexagram is. So the Book of Lies is kind of this big puzzle of mm. numerological um, connections and and but also a bunch of jokes because this chapter of the holy hexagram basically describes in very poetic language what the what the significance is of sex magic and in typical curly fashion it is chapter 69 and he even sort of makes a little joke about it in in the commentary um so we definitely know that crowley amped these rituals up because he believed sex magic was a faster, easier, and more reliable way of getting magical results. So maybe that's important for listeners to understand. The point was not to just have sex or something. Mm -hmm. It was quite technical, required a lot of concentration techniques. Uh, Crowley just became convinced at a certain point through the OTO, possibly, possibly through Tantra, that's never really been established, that sexual magic is able to function as a kind of shortcut to all of the sort of ritual paraphernalia and, and a lot of ritual gestures and a lot of things you would have to do to tune your mind into the right channel, so to speak. The problem is that this ritual was part of the AA's own teachings. So there aren't any clear instructions for non-members So they would have to be really advanced in magical practice to be able to just take this from the Book of Lies and make it function. So, yeah, I remember Dana saying she was studying the ritual, but I kind of feel for her because they can do uh, they can absolutely do a ritual of the hexagram without Crowley's sex magic insertions. Um, But I I don't know if, if that was if that was the goal of, you know, quote unquote Terry wrist. Um, I'm not sure. I, it seems to be kind of another dead end for them in the end. Cause like I said, Crowley never gave clear instructions for this. He kind of relied on his readers to be advanced enough in magic, which they of course are not to take the text and sort of make something of their own that works. So yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit too complex for okay. them or for us really. Right. I, I see what you're saying. But in terms of what Greenfield and Wrist were speaking of it being some kind of weapon to yeah. fight against Black Lodge, I guess, in so many terms, the, the entities yeah. or the energies that are working towards keeping evolution of humanity uh, stagnant or, or creating a, a situation where it is stagnant that there's no uh, improvement or, or evolution happening. Does that even make any sense as far as purpose? Robert. Um, yeah, I'm going to give this one to <laughs> well, Robert. Robert stuck his hand up. So I'm going to go to him first. <laughs> so based on uh, the research I have been doing in the Starfire 
uh, or Star Sapphire Ritual. Um, I listened to a podcast, Spirit Box. Um, in episode 13, there was a Thelmite on the podcast, Marco Visconti, Viscotti. Um, yeah, yeah. He was also on Penny Royal. Okay. So he he goes into what the Star Sapphire Ritual does. Oh, okay. And so from what I've gathered... It's a hexagram ritual, and on each point of the hexagram, you do a different sexual position in a trance state up to the point of orgasm, and then you stop, and then you switch positions uh, both physically and locationally on the hexagram. And what this five-fold ritual does, each position and then whatever else afterward, you, you create an energy charge. You charge the body and you create a human battery essentially. And that supercharged human battery would allow for then uh, communication or you can do things with this energy. Okay. Um, And so Greenfield talks about, he says radioactive sexuality. Um, So it's like supercharged humans. And A, this is interesting, in ufology, UFO sightings are really concentrated around nuclear power plants and nuclear arms bases um, and energy kind of store places. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's this connection between UFOs and large quantities of extreme energy. So supercharging the human body through the star sapphire ritual is conductive, uh, conducive, and attempted a joke on my part. Um, But it's not necessarily a goal in itself. Uh, It might be a step. Okay. And so so in the Complete Secret Cipher, Mm -hmm. there are two important texts. Um, The second interview with Terry Rist, Mm -hmm. and then there's... Greenfield's analog of what's called the Bornless One Ritual. And I think the Bornless One Ritual is far more important for the Hellier team than the Star Sapphire Ritual. So if you can indulge me, I can kind of do some Bornless One history, quick and dirty. Um, <laughs> sure. Where is this? Uh, do you have a page number? Yeah, the so the, the essay title is... Ritual for Calling Down Awanis. Um, I believe it's page 115 of the Complete Secret Cipher. Okay. And so here, Greenfield kind of explains, and the essay's around it also, mm-hmm. but he explains how to open or close a stargate, essentially. And so the, the Bornless One ritual, from what I can tell, it first gets articulated in kind of Egyptology, uh, Victorian research into magic by Goodwin. And he says it's Greco-Egyptian from the Greek Osifal, which means headless one. And this eventually gets uh, translated into bornless one. And the bornless one ritual, it's present in um, Goetic magic, the Goetia, And it's in a Golden Dawn ritual. Supposedly, it's involved in Jewish mystical exorcisms. And then Crowley 
takes the Bornless One ritual from the Golden Dawn and he writes it in Lieber S-E-M-E-K-H. Sink? Sank? Lieber Sank? And it's, it's a ritual for contacting the guardian angel specifically. Oh. And then so, yeah, so that's important because Crowley's entire kind of extraterrestrial thread is really more plugged into the guardian angel and kind of the prater human intelligences mm-hmm. and less of the ufological bent that contemporary kind of Kenneth Grant, um, mm-hmm. Greenfield magic has. And so Greenfield, again, uh, messes with the Bornless One ritual through Crowley's version, and he codes it to be an ultra-terrestrial ritual. And so he changes the rites, um, the, the infernal names that get used and called forward. And so in the second interview with Terry Rist, in the appendix mm-hmm. of the second book, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. not the secret cipher, but the... the the secret rituals of the men in black. Yeah. In yeah. the, in the appendix, yeah. there's another interview with Terry and they talk about Terry doing this ritual on a solstice and kind of the results or the lack of results that he gets. And he uses kind of an Enochian scry system um, in addition to this. And so this is a ritual for contacting alien intelligences which would be exacerbated by doing a star sapphire ritual because uh, you'd supercharge yourself and then you do a, a contact ritual. And um, okay, Greenfield literally asks them about this ritual and this interview. And I don't think they read it. Um, Greg is like, uh, I kind of remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they'd read it, it would have clicked um, or it would have made sense. Yeah. But so so Greenfield again gave them this tool. The blue star is really about serious. Um, maybe maybe not. But there's there's more rituals than just the star sapphire, even okay. present in the show, that get overlooked or need to be refolded per se. So, are you? suggesting that this is something that they should go back and look at again? If they haven't already. Um, if they haven't already. Okay. But yeah. This, this bornless ritual is pretty established as. Well, what does that the, mean? Like, bornless. What does that mean? So the original term is. Acephalos. Acephalos from the Greek. And that means headless. And. Okay. When this was translated from the Greek by Goodwin in the 18th century, he translated as bornless, which is more of a, an outside entity. Like it, it wasn't born, it is. Um, it's this kind of non-temporal primordial uh, eldritch thing, you might oh, say. Oh, okay. Um, and this is relevant for CCRU stuff, but we don't have to go there yet. Okay, um, we got all the rhizome coming <laughs> exactly. in. Here we go. Okay. But yeah, so the, the Bornless Ritual um, is a thread to pursue, perhaps. Okay. Thomas, what would you add to that? I, For me, this was also all new. I mean, Crowley does not talk about this stuff at all. Um, in a way, it's 
expected because UFO lore, et cetera, didn't exist yet. Um, this is something that has been on my mind a little bit. Um, there seems to be a lot of, I don't want to say assumptions, but the Holy Guardian Angel for in Crowley's context, so I'm not here talking about Greenfield, et cetera, mm-hmm. is, is such a complicated goal, I guess, for Crowley. And I'm just not sure what, what Crowley would have would have thought about this suggestion that the the reason to connect with your holy guardian angel would be to then knock a UFO out of the sky or something like something about it. Um, I, you know, I would suggest the Hellier team to clearly distinguish Greenfield's interpretation Uh of, of Crowley from what Crowley himself is writing. Crowley's whole presentation of what that of the process of magic is to go inside yourself. And it's never quite clear until the end of his life, whether or not Crowley considered the Holy guardian angel, even to be an outer being or not. And the whole reason for that is part of the confusion is because he named Awas, his holy guardian angel, the being that supposedly Mm -hmm. revealed the book of the law to him. And in one of his final works, Magic Without Tears, he literally says that the holy guardian angel is an external being with its own universe, that it is not a projection. But at the same time, immediately afterwards, and throughout that book, he says, you really can't understand anything about the holy guardian angel because it operates on a in his zone, here we are again, where that boundary between yourself and other is not to say, not even just blurred, but non-existent. So the whole purpose of magic is to go beyond that area of consensus reality where you can even distinguish between yourself and another being. So that confuses the whole extraterrestrial ufo thing even more so i think what one of the things that i'm interested in is if you would even do this ritual would it still make sense to talk about men in black and goblins i mean from from what i can gather from crowley it wouldn't because you would be in such an altered state of consciousness that i don't think you would perceive what is alien or other the same way you would in consensus reality if that makes sense so, so I think alterations of consciousness is something they should look into rather than just assume that these rituals create a kind of superpower by themselves. Um, it, this kind of reminds me of, of Greg saying, which was, in my opinion, kind of charming, that they experienced an ego death in the cave at the at season two. I thought that was kind of humorous because ego death is something Crowley talked about as this ultimately overpowering life altering event that completely and permanently disrupts that boundary between self and other. So they did not experience ego death in that cave. Um, And I don't think they want to. And this is kind of the question that I have. I'm not sure the Hellier team wants to practice magic. I don't think if they read about what is involved and, and, and the results on their own subjectivity, I, I'm not sure if any of them would be willing to even try this ritual because the effects would be very severe on a psychological mm-hmm. level. 
perhaps permanent. That at least was Crowley's, that was his, that was his goal. His goal, Crowley's goal is to completely and permanently alter the way you experience the world and yourself in it. And I'm not sure if this UFO context and this Greenfield context makes that clear. So I think that's an interesting layer to the whole conversation that wasn't so present in Hellier. Okay. Robert, is there something you want to add right now? Yeah. um, I think I I agree that Crowley's design for his rituals um, isn't necessarily a design that, or isn't the intention that gets played out by people who modify these rituals. Um, Like Crowley communicating with the guardian angel about kind of ego death, inner space, uh, so on and so forth. And I, I think Greenfield and Grant, they, they're taking the knife that Crowley gave them, but they're using it as a screwdriver. So it's the same ritual and it does some of the same things, but they use it in a new way. Um, you could call this the, the doctrine of parampara kind of modifications of spiritual lineage but the consistency between Crowley and Grant and Greenfield is the mob zone. Uh, Crowley, of course, doesn't call it the mob zone, but this inner space, which is the overlap and coincidence between dream and reality, both and neither, uh, neither neither principle. Um, I don't know if I used that correctly, um, <laughs> but it's consistent between all of them. And so they're using this, the, the, the tools to get there, but then they're doing different things. Uh, so where Crowley goes there to become spiritually enlightened, Grant goes there to communicate with intelligences. A paranormal researcher might go there to research intelligences. Like if we take this, if you take this idea to kind of, and play it out in sightings of Mothman, sightings of UFOs, sightings of Sasquatch, their slippages between the Moth zone and our spatial temporality, which are facilitated by shifts, slippages, so on and so forth in consciousness. Um, so they overlap. Um, fiction and fact get blurred. We start to have changes So if you have someone playing with or using those tools as research methods, they might be able to not necessarily do a spiritually ego death ritual that changes their quote unquote soul, but they could kind of uh, create a resonance such that an intermediary being can then have a facilitated dialogue used in a liberal sense that makes sense? Or if it doesn't make sense? I feel like I'm completely out of my element right now. I think what you're getting at is, is answering the question that arose in my mind when Thomas was talking about how crawling is seemingly not intending to use these rituals in the same way that Greenfield wants to. So that's clear to me. But with regards to how this plays into 
it being some kind of weapon, that's still unclear to me. I mean, there, I brought up this, I think I brought this up in one of our earlier private conversations about this whole concept of the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. There's this duality there. That and and that the Black Lodge, that all of the entities that come out of this Black Lodge, are dangerous, harmful, uh, destructive entities with regards to humanity. They they don't have the best interests of humanity. They they seem to want to use us as a pawn in their game or you know, abuse us in some way. I mean, there are a lot of traumatic experiences that are, you know, you know, accounts of, of, you know, serious trauma that these people had, had gone through with, with regards to abductions and, and things like that. So I guess where I'm getting, where I'm getting stuck in the, in the whole trying to find some kind of meaning or significance of what, I understand that this could be relative that one person might put a significance on a ritual that another person might not, uh, and, and they might see it in a different way, but maybe it would be a good idea, Robert, for you to talk about, um, about your research into all of this. I mean, you already started just a little bit before now, um, just now to talk about how, all of these paranormal UFO, all of this stuff that has come out of, I would say after like World War II, you know, all of these these events of high strangeness. How how is this playing into this occult narrative? And why, I guess my second question would be, why is someone like Greenfield wanting to take magical practices, magical ritual practices, and apply it to this phenomena? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think okay. so. Um, there's a couple ways to approach that. Um, so so first off, kind of talking about my research, mm-hmm. um, I look into what's called a cultural, what I'm calling a cultural accelerationism. So it's, it's finding lost futures uh, around occult technology, but also locating signals from future occult technology and bringing them together in the imminent now, which probably sounds kind of kooky. Um, but so a good example of this is using the God helmet okay. to talk to alien entities or just using the God helmet as a paranormal kind of technology. Mm-hmm. It's So the God helmet induces quasi-religious states, uh, altered states of consciousness nonetheless, which is, it's a spiritual occult technology more or less, like trance states, but we're doing technologically induced trance states. But then we're doing technologically induced trance states in order to communicate with non-physical 
or non-localized entities. So it's occult technology for occult communications, um, which is already a step past where psychical research stopped around World War II. We just, it just kind of, it got to a point and then it got dropped for all of the various polemical kind of historical revisionist okay. reasons after World War II. Um, so they're, they're developing occult practices for investigative research means using new tech. Um, it's kind of like, it's cyberpunk occultism, as I would call it, because it's high technology, low culture. Um, they're using high tech to do occult practice for uh, kind of anthropological gonzo investigation. Okay, if I can stop you just for a second, who's they? Okay, so the the Hellier team. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> you're losing me already. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and so other instances would be doing the same thing. Um, the television series, The OA. Oh, yeah. Love that they, show. Um, people in that show, scientists, these robots are created, and the robots do a series of abstract positionalities called the movements Mm -hmm. and doing these movements in the right sequence in the right space literally creates an interdimensional portal. Yes. Um, And so in the first season, they have humans doing this. And the second season, they code technology to do this nonetheless, quote unquote, irrational activity. Mm -hmm. And so this would be an instance of a cultural accelerationism. Okay. And so I, I think we can look to the past in order to find the future by kind of splicing high tech into occult tech, uh, occult futurism. I, I have a paper that kind of touches on this, um, on alchemical theater and like our toe, yes. but this, that's kind of the, the end of it, but it creates a kind of a aesthetic ontology per se. Where did this link get created that, oh, I can use this magic, this thalamic magic, for talking to uh, aliens, and, and for lack of a better word. So using the star sapphire ritual um, specifically, a weapon isn't necessarily for attack. Weapons are also used for defense. Okay. And if we have such instances of abduction and abuse from the gray aliens or like mm-hmm. the draconian aliens, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Black Lodge, mm-hmm. being able to facilitate magic uh, and magical charge could be used as defense both passively and actively. And active defense might be paradoxical, but if you're doing rituals where you're trying to contact aliens through hypnosis or through various trance states, um, Grant would say necronomicon gnosis. But if you're doing these, it's probably safe to charge your battery first Mm -hmm. so that you're not per se paralyzed or disarmed or just kind of at their mercy. You can prepare yourself to uh, communicate with them. 
So it could just, okay. it could be a defensive matter. Yeah. Okay. So with regards to the Hellier team, they're not doing any of this stuff because they don't know about this stuff. Another thing that came up in the show is that they were talking about they were being initiated, that they felt that, you know, this kind of came up time and time again. And then they started to think, well, maybe we are being initiated. Does this have something to do with this, that they're being initiated into, hey, you need to know this stuff so you can protect yourself? Is that what this perhaps could be alluding to? I'm I'm sure it's related. It might not be the express purpose, but it could be one of a multiplicity of reasons. Right. Not the only reason, but it could be a possible explanation for why these rituals kept getting brought up and the concept of initiation and, and all of this, that this kept coming into the story because it didn't seem like they... At a certain point, they didn't really even want to focus on this because they didn't know what what this was about. And they wanted to do the God helmet and the Estes method, and they wanted to do other things, and they wanted to do their own rituals that they created. Yeah, the, it, it seemed like they're almost being forced into something that they, A, didn't know anything about, and B, perhaps didn't want to do. But they kind of got sucked into it in a, in a way. So in, in that regard, I kind of feel like this whole conversation that we've been having up until this point is like outside of the hellier team, because this is not what they were dealing with in for, for themselves. They weren't thinking this way. They weren't approaching the, the topic this way. And we're putting all this meaning onto it that for them, it's irrelevant almost. At least in the beginning it was. I think now they're starting to change their opinions about about it because they've been getting so much feedback from from people who have all of these ideas. What would you say to that? That is something I was also very interested in. Um, the difference with becoming an occultist, uh, control is a very important aspect of, of being an occultist. You know what you're getting into. You're choosing to be initiated, first of all. I mean, mm-hmm. at least in most cases. And you're performing rituals with a with an understructure that you can study beforehand. And you have a specific goal in mind. And I think that, to me, stuck out as the biggest difference. The Hellier team doesn't have an understructure. Not even, like, a, they're looking for a grand theory, but they don't. They haven't found it yet yeah. while already doing rituals and experiments. Right. They also don't really know what their goal is. I mean, they have this pretty, you know, a rather vague goal of they use language like maybe we're awakening something or something is trying to contact us and we have to open a channel for that communication to come through. Again, if you would do a standard occultist ritual, you would know the being you're evoking or invoking. You would have a symbol set that you could use to evoke or invoke that specific being. And you would know what you were expecting that entity to do. You know, you don't perform a magical ritual without having a goal in mind, I guess. So that's a big difference. And I think I always think about when I was watching the rituals they were doing, I was thinking as an academic, what would my favorite authors 
say about them right now? Like, what what would Diane Fortson say? What would Israel Lagarde say? And I think what they would say is, you guys need to stop what you're doing because you're opening yourself up to psychological forces, possibly ontological forces that you can't control because you have no control. And to simply open yourself up to anything that's out there in a randomly chosen location is extremely dangerous. And sometimes I wonder if that, if they're aware of that risk having been discussed among occultists for over a hundred years now, that you can go insane trying to invoke these forces that are simply, that cannot be invoked in people who have no control, who have no training without something going wrong. So I think that's another layer. I think they kind of touch on that though, because they do say, you know, you're going to lose your effing mind. I, re- yeah. I, I recall them saying that you're going to, you're going to go insane. You're going to go crazy doing this. Yes, that's true. And in Penny Royal, I remember Marco, was it Visconti? Yeah. Uh, the last name that he said, if you are not mentally stable and prepared to do these rituals, then you're going to see the monsters basically Yeah, referring to, the traumatic experiences that people are talking about in their own experiences that could be like the stories that Amy talked about in, in Hellier or, you know, other traumatic, you know, experiences that other people have had in other instances. It it seems like, and they seem to know this also, intuitively that there's something bigger going on but they don't know what that is and they're not and they aren't prepared for it they don't know what they don't know what to do and and at the end of season two they as as robert noted that they, that they're talking about now that they feel like they have some tools i would be curious to know if they feel like they need to go into learning about ritual magic to be able to proceed. I mean, that's of course the question. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to ask them. And if they would ever talk about that, I don't know, but. Well, interestingly, Greg mentions he performs chaos magic. It's sort of casually slipped in, but he yeah, says, I, right. I perform rituals that most people would consider chaos magic. And it's right. kind of, does say that. it's kind of funny that he, thinks of this as a completely different kind of magic because the ritual that Dana performs in the cave seems to him like something completely different that he would never have done unless Dana would have asked him to do it. So I'm really wondering what kind of rituals he is doing. Mm -hmm. Chaos magic might even be a more logical form of magic in this context than, than like, um, you know, trying to contact fairies and the altars. And, and so, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting connection that they don't really use, but maybe it's more important than he thinks. I don't know. Mm. I think the, the way we've been talking about um, approaching these rituals and occultism, it would fall under chaos magic. It's kind of yeah. a, a DIY ritual magic. And w- what I've noticed is a lot of people who 
identify with chaos magic. What they're talking about is Austin, Austin Ostman Spare's sigil magic that then gets re kind of introduced through uh, Peter Carroll. But you could just making sigils and charging them and kind of creating intention and energy flows. Like that's chaos magic and that's the easiest mm-hmm. chaos magic. A lot of people do that. I would imagine Greg would do that. Um, they talk about hyper sigils in the show. Like mm-hmm. the show is it itself a sigil that's doing exactly that. So they have that language. But I don't think they, do. they uh, the Hellier team specifically has understood that chaos magic has different levels of structure and is resonant with the things they're dealing with also. Because you get this uh, Lovecraftian kind of outsideness in r- ritual chaos magic, um, but you don't necessarily get that from charging a sigil and a sigil and just working at that level. I'll also note that Crowley kind of was the... I mean, he didn't like create chaos magic, but he was a massive figure and inspiring chaos magic so if i can offer a very nonsensical irrational theory i mean i've found i've read that i haven't read this on like reddit in the forums but is it possible that i don't know terry Rist or someone else felt that greg was performing chaos magic and sort of tapped into that and felt hey we could that that's why the email started. I don't know. It's just a, it's just me having fun with the connections, but it's just interesting that hmm. that's what Greg's doing, and he doesn't seem to realize that it ties into all of their connections that they've explored so far. Yeah, so he I don't doesn't. Know. Yeah, he just mentions it briefly, doesn't go into it. It makes me wonder if whether or not he's like really like serious about what he's doing or if it's just random stuff that he does from time to time, or if he's deliberately not giving more information for, for whatever reason. Hmm. That's yeah, that that's an interesting thing that you both bring up there. Dana's a hedge witch. Yeah. Um, and she's been practicing for a good while. She knows what she's doing mm-hmm. as a lit. Uh, and that's part of why, the Newkirks are noteworthy without even touching Hellier. They've been using witchcraft to do paranormal research for a good while. Um, and I've seen a couple like shows they did after and before Hellier, not relating to Hellier. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get to see how they incorporate this. Um, it's, it's interesting. But okay. again, it's not ritual structure. But it's still, theoretically, you're uh, trafficking the same energies. Uh, Right, exactly. So would this perhaps, or could this perhaps, have some kind of link then to, in the last episode, when the gentleman that came to help Connor... Tenny? Yes, thank you. He said that there's a need for, quote-unquote, new magic that they're not really supposed to be using this old magic that you would find in Thalema and OTO and, you know, these golden Dawn, you know, that, that they're supposed to be creating new magic. And it may be, this is just, I'm just thinking off, you know, thinking out loud here. Maybe that's why the appropriation of all of these rituals, it, it doesn't, 
it doesn't matter that they're not doing it the way that Crowley would have done it or the intention or with the same intention that Crowley would have because they're supposed to be creating something new in this re- in this regard. The only irony then is that they're using a super old cipher. I mean, this isn't mentioned oh. in the show, but the cipher they're using is one of like 10 plus ciphers that have been offered to to solve this this cipher mystery in the Book of the Law. So if the Hellier team is listening, this might be something worth knowing. I've counted, I think, 11 different systems of English Kabbalah to, and, and of course, Alan Greenfield only uses one, but mm-hmm. he uses the oldest one. But since it, it's, it's the English Kabbalah, it's the James Lee system. But there have been numerous corrections because this cipher is perceived to not really be rooted in Thelemic lore. So that's interesting in itself that other Thelemites have sought different interpretations of the numbers to closer match the findings to Crowley's own philosophy. So because there's so much emphasis on use the numbers, it's kind of interesting that the numbers are actually quite old, possibly outdated. Most Thelemites I'm reading note that the, the Thelema community doesn't even believe that the cipher can be cracked in one way, that you would probably have to use all of the different ciphers at once to look for like the biggest commonalities, that the cipher can't be cracked, so to speak. So hmm. that would be interesting to tie into the new ritual stuff, because why use new magical rituals when you're going to use an old cipher? That's, that, what, that stuck out to me as kind of weird. I think it's worth noting that the CCRU discovered their own cipher doing research on the pneumogram. Uh, and so there's an entirely different system that still hasn't even, there are just like a handful of people researching that one. But given the establishment between uh, CCRU hyperstition and this entire complex, pneumogrammatic magic hasn't even been scraped yet but it's already demonstrated consistency with this old magic um, and older currents as something designed or uh, engaged to more specifically interact with our kind of postmodern approaches to things. Um, So CCRU as an occult organization is definitely a good thread for anyone. Maybe not the Newkirks. Uh, I'd love to see them read Nick Land. That would kind of be fun, but yeah, exactly what Thomas is saying. There's lots of ciphers and there's lots of weird magic systems now. And if you're going to be a KO, like nothing's true, everything's permitted, you know, mm. just have fun with it. Or, But be safe. Uh, I think that's also what we've expressed. Don't go yeah. getting possessed unless that's the goal. Just a few things to mention before wrapping up part one. Please check the program notes for information about the imaginal, should you be interested to know more about this concept. And this includes Henri Corbin's concept of the mundus imaginalis, the imagination as a tool of perception, and the imaginal as a real place. Also, regarding tulpas and the place where members of a plural system reside that I brought up in the conversation. I couldn't remember exactly what the term was called. It is indeed called Wonderland. 
and I'll include reference material, uh, other reference material that was brought up in the first half as well. With regard to the suggestion to the Hellier team in our conversation about chaos magic, while in the process of editing this episode, I happened to catch an Instagram live from Tyler Strand where he was talking a little bit about chaos magic practices. So it would seem that some in the team are looking more into this and who knows, perhaps other magical rituals. Part two will pick up where we left off regarding the potential dangers of practicing magic without being well prepared. And then we move on to gateways as a possible explanation for high strangeness events, the nature of tulpas and other similar entities, the academic questions about what we are actually studying, and whether or not scholars can add anything of value to boots on the ground field work. I hope you'll join us for part two.